Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. There's a, there's a, a quote by a, a theologian. I really love this man. He writes so well. His name is John Stott, and he says this. Christianity in its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. I'll read it again. The concept of resurrection lies at the heart of Christianity, which he said is a resurrection religion. If you remove resurrection, Christianity is destroyed. And, and I want to start on this note because I think very easily we are moved with things. I think the lines are being blurred ever more in our day, in our generation. The lines where we, sh- we ought not to cross. We ought not even go near those lines. You know, I saw a video of someone that did this on social media was trying to say that there are things that are actually so perverted that we take as funny. The things that should never be jokes. And somehow our senses are dulled. And the truth is, if you are not intentional about sharpening your discernment to realize where the lines are being blurred, where you are crossing lines, you will every time find yourself crossing those lines. You know, and this applies to everyone. And some of you can relate to this. That maybe the very first time you listen, and I'll, I'll give you a, a good, a, an honest, vulnerable um, example. I remember when listening to certain things, maybe I'm listening to a comedian, you know, and I'm just skipping through, oh, let me see what this comedian is about, stand-up comedy. And the comedian uses, you know, cuss words and, and uses the F word. And I hear it, I'm like, hey, ha, hey, not me. He changed the channel. And I move. And over time, it's almost like, look, it's, it's here to stay. These cuss words, these vulgarity obscenities are here to stay. And subconsciously, I've just also seemed to say, you know what? It's not really bad. It's not that bad. You know, and, and when I think about it, I'm like, why am I thinking that way? Because I had a narrow escape with using the F word one time. I wish I had time to tell you about that. And I replaced it with Father in Heaven. <laughs> Someone upset me. I said, what the Father in Heaven is wrong with you? And that was my saving grace. And I shouldn't even do that in the first place. What I'm trying to say is that in a generation like ours, there are things that start to be moved in our view and we start to just settle into it unconsciously. Whereas these things are perversions. These things are I'm going to give you an example of what I'm trying to say. One, one of the seasons and celebrations that we have in our, in our world, um, we, we just celebrated it a few months ago, Christmas. Christmas is that period of time where we've ascribed it to many things. And all over the world, Christmas means different things for different people. And ideally, for, for us as Christians, what do we know? We say Christmas is a day that commemorates the birth of the Savior. He was born in a manger, December 25th. And there's a debate, of course, this was a pagan holiday initially, 
why did you people use this date? All, all of that. We, we allocated the date and said, look, we're going to assign this date as the date that he was born. But all over the world, and all over the world, businesses have jumped on this. The media has, has changed the narrative. People in politics have changed everything about what Christmas means. Now, Christmas is about spending time with family. Christmas is about the trees, the lights, the socks, the eggnog, the, the, eggnog, the, the figging pudding, the gifts, everything. This is what it is. The chicken, the jollof rice. This is what Christmas is for so many people. And we've lost sight on the most important things. When you talk about, um, I'll just give you an example of, of a movement, a religion. I'll use Islam, for example, where... Islam, in many ways, looks very noble. And there are many things about it, to be honest, that are noble. There are ascetic practices where they fast, where they give alms, where they pray, where they make pilgrimage. These are things that the pillars of their faith that when you look at it from a distance, look, this looks, they, they look like some of the best people you ever meet. But when you dig deeper into the foundation of their doctrines and what they stand for, and many of you, if you don't know this, Islam the, and, and the, the founder of Islam, if I should call him that, the propagator of Islam um, of, by Prophet Muhammad, you know, had Jewish roots. He had family that were Jewish. And so a lot of his writings were influenced. When you see him write about Moses, Abraham, Ibrahim, Moses with Musa, they were all influenced by that. But what you see fundamentally is that as... as he starts to navigate, he starts to counteract a lot of Christian beliefs. He starts to say things that, you know, the resurrection never happened because Jesus never even died in the first place. He starts to say that Jesus is not even the son of God. He's a man like us. He's a servant of God. Nothing more, nothing less. Do you understand? So these are things that are coming to stay to push back the essence of our, of our faith. And now in this season, this celebration that we're in called Easter, I mean, easily, easily all around the world, it means so much. It means so many things. You know, across the world, I remember still when, <laughs> I don't know how I fell for this, but I remember when I was still growing up, um, it was very popular. I used to watch a lot of Disney Channel. So there were, there were always talk, you know, talks about Easter bunnies and things like that. Bunnies, Easter bunnies, and you have to get the egg. I'm like, how does... The egg relates to the bunny. It, it still doesn't make sense to me. But I remember because we were kids, it's chocolate. You know, the, the, the media is saying things like they don't want to scare kids about some guy who died and resurrected. So let's make it nice and chocolatey and sweet for them. And in all parts of the world, I was talking to a, um, a, a friend of mine and he was sharing this, how that, you know, he's, he's a pastor from South Africa. He was sharing how that... Um, all across the world, you have people celebrating different things. In Australia, for example, there are these rabbits called bilby rabbits. And in a time like this, they propagate how these rabbits are almost close to extinction and how to preserve them. In Hungary, literally, the people pour water on themselves to celebrate Easter. You just stand there and they pour water on you. That's how they celebrate. Across the world, it means different things. The point I'm trying to make is this. We must have zero tolerance for any concept, every idea 
that tries to push away the central position and the central focus, the synergy of our faith. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Any concept, every institution that is being formed to nullify, to, to make it unnecessary and make it obsolete, we must, we must resist such forces. We must be vocal about it even. Do you understand what I'm saying? They have to be sensitive because this is the attempt of the enemy. I just, that's just by the, by the side. But I'm saying this because, look, there are many things that you're probably being desensitized to. That's a strategy of the enemy. If you're being desensitized to something, if you are, you are comfortable with something that you shouldn't be, with a perversion, it just means that your discernment is being weakened. But praise be to Jesus, you can grow your discernment. You can choose to stand out, to hold firm to your convictions and to your faith. Praise the name of Jesus. I want to start with this scripture, Psalm 130, from verse 3 to 4. Very powerful scripture. Open your Bibles with me if you can. Psalm 130, from verse 3 to 4. I will read it very, very, very quickly. It's getting a bit hot here. If you could help with that. All right, Psalm 130 from verse 3 to 4. It says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if he should mark and ascribe and impute iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Look at that question. If you mark iniquities, Lord, who will stand? Who will be left as vindicated? But look at how he says it. But there is forgiveness with you. But there is forgiveness with you. I love this. There is forgiveness with you. That you may be feared. That you may be feared. When we think about the fear of God, many times we think by default of God's anger. God being angry with us. When we think about the cross, and when we talk about the cross, we talk about a God who is cross, literally, with everybody. God is just angry, so he should be feared. He is eager to punish, eager to destroy any small thing who swap, slap your face like that. Divine slap. And, and we have this, I call it an unbalanced fear. Fear of God is important. It's the beginning of wisdom, as, as, as was written in in, 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 in as was written in the book of Proverbs. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is necessary, but it can be unbalanced and unhealthy. When the whole focus about the fear of God, when the whole summation about your regard and respect and reverence of God is just about his wrath, his justice, him being mean, him being angry, then your fear will be poisonous. It will be unbalanced. It will be unbalanced. Let me read a scripture to you that would help you understand where I'm getting with uh, on this. Luke chapter 7 from verse 41 to 48. I love this story so much. The background is this. Jesus is invited by his Pharisee uh, named Simon. He's in his house with his disciples. And this woman comes all of a sudden out of nowhere. And she's pouring and tearing her eyes out. 
Rasta. And she couldn't even say the words. And she, she, she gets the most ex expensive thing that she could find and pours it out, alabaster box of oil, and cries and uses her hair to wipe it. Because you see, in the Jewish culture, when you wash the feet of someone, you're showing them honor. You're showing them that you love and respect them. It's a, it's a way of welcoming someone into your home. You wash their feet. And she didn't have anything, clothes, water, soap. She, had the, the, she brought the most expensive thing, kissed his feet, wiped it with her hair. Now you might ask, what is this woman doing? Like, why is she causing such a scene? And if you probably saw this thing from afar, like, eh? Ah, you know, she, Jesus, when he was concluding the story, you know, he was saying that, look, when I came, you, you did not wash my feet. You did not kiss me. She was literally kissing his feet, kissing him. If you looked at it, you were just like, ah, I, I'm so excited. <laughs> Today I get to see this Messiah called Jesus. You know, I heard he's in Simon's house. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go quickly. Ah, this man must be glowing white. This man is a man of God. Ah, let's go. <laughs> eh? Today come, today come. Is that not the guy? Hey! Ha! Hey! For lucky for the night to see for lucky. Kissing this man's feet. He doesn't even know that she's a prostitute. Ha! Ah. False prophet. And we'll see the scene and make all sorts of judgment. But what I see from this woman's heart is this. Look, she's trying to appease. She's trying, and Jesus knew her heart. She's trying to appease for her sins. Her trade, this was someone who was possessed of demons. And this is someone who was living in a lifestyle of promiscuity. She was a prostitute. She was. But Jesus asked Simon this story. It says there was a certain creditor, verse 41, who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So let's, let's convert that to dollars. Let's just use this and exchange it for dollars. Let's say $500 and the other person was owing $50. Verse 42, And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my, washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. And verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil, perfume oil. Verse 47, therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, her debts, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom much is forgiven, is what he's saying, that person will love much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he says to her, your sins, this was the reason she was there. 
She didn't know, could she buy and afford a lamb and sacrifice it? Is that what was necessary? But all she knew was what she was sorry. She needed a savior. She knew she had sin. She was dark and dirty and six foot deep in sin and buried underneath. And she needed help. She needed grace. And Jesus saw that. And his perspective, his philosophy is this. No, no, no. The person that has the most sin... You might see it as, oh, this is someone to run away from. This is someone to step out from. They are unred- irredeemable. They are, they are just outcasts. But his, pers- his perspective is this. If, if someone with such pile of sin, such weight of sin on their backs, if such a person is forgiven of all their sins because they could never pay the debt that they were owing, guess what? Such a person will love immensely immensely when you think about the magnanimity of the love of God when you think about how benevolent it is you should fear God (laughs) fear him that wait 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 you mean to tell me that someone who had stabbed you in the back rebelled against you done all these things with their lives in one moment of repentance all can be forgiven man if 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 that's the god that that i have and serve i must fear him and god wants us to have a healthy outlook a healthy fear a balanced fear of his love to the pharisee when you think about it it made sense that the, the way they reacted when when simon heard that uh, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. He was, he was taken aback. He was, what? How dare you? Do you know what this woman, who, and who are you? To even tell us that, and tell this woman that she's forgiven. Don't deceive this woman. It, it, it seemed irrational. It seemed crazy. But this is the point. That what Jesus was trying to do was to show us that through the cross, through the cross, He will be just in forgiving us. He will be just in clearing out all our sins. He was going to fulfill the legal requirement that would take away all the sins of the world. He was going to fulfill the justice of God. So when you look about at at the cross, when you look at the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, I want you to approach it with fear. But not just fear that God was just in punishing and God was just in in sacrificing his son, but that God was also love. Psalm 103 said it so clearly. It says, but there is forgiveness in you. There is forgiveness in you that you may be feared. The kind of forgiveness that is given is the kind that you see and say, whoa. How can I owe such a debt of $5 billion and you just forgive me? I'll fear, you know, think about it, literally. If we're going to use an everyday contemporary example, if you're owing me, think about it, you're owing me 5 million naira. Just think about it. You're owing me 5 million naira. I lent it to you. You wanted to start your business. Your business now crashed. And I come and meet you. In fact, if you look at myself or come near me, you hide. Imagine we just stopped there. Ah, how far now? Eh, Tunde, Kilo Day. How far now? This is uh, 
April. You're supposed to pay me back in March. And you start to say, um, you see, ah, ah, my guy, see, my guy, ah, I tried. I did everything, like, honestly, like, you know how the economy is now, and you're giving all the excuses. Imagine I'm just looking at you and say, you know, and you're, and you're begging, like, see, please, I don't know, I don't know what I can do. I, I, I'm willing to sell this, I'm willing to sell that, say anything, just give me time, please, I'm sorry. And imagine I just look at you, ah, no, 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 ah, it's five million, right? Don't worry. You look at, <laughs> would you not be scared? I'll just say, ah, Five million, it's fine, enjoy. <laughs> and I walk away. It's something to be, it's something that will just, when it seems excess, excessive and extravagant and, and luxurious and seems abundant, it should move you to a holy fear of God. That God is, there is forgiveness in Him. There is forgiveness in Him. But like I said, God wants to show us that through the cross, he was actually just in forgiving. Right here, he's talking to this woman and he's telling her, look, literally he's re representing to her the system, the mechanism that offers forgiveness. It's repentance and faith in him. That's the mechanism. Repentance and faith in him, in his work and ability to forgive. But there was a time he was going to fulfill the requirements legally on the cross. And he's, he's got, he was trying to prove that, look, he was just in doing that. Romans 3, 25, verse 26. I'm getting somewhere with this. Just follow me. Romans chapter 3 from verse 25 to 26. Powerful scripture. It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The, the word propitiation is actually a paganistic word so when people in the pagan world in in a world of hedonites and and just people that have nothing uh that want nothing to do with god in those those places when you have they have their gods that they worship and maybe there's a famine or maybe there's some disaster or flood what these guys would do is they come to a consensus that the reason the gods are angry is because we've done something wrong. And you've seen this in movies, you've seen this in Hollywood, Nollywood, mostly Nollywood actually, where some God is upset, some deity is upset, and people start to suffer for it. And what do they do? They get a sin offering. They get some propitiation. So many times in some cultures, it's a child sacrifice, sadly. For others, it's, it's women they use. They use... All these things, and to them, when they offer this sacrifice, kill this person in a ritual experience, the, the wrath seems to subside. This word is actually um, uh, very, very common in the paganistic worlds, but I, I see that it's being used here because it's, it literally typifies atonement. It's a real word. It, it's that God set forth a propitiation by his blood. Think about it, that the deity himself, was the one that offered the offering. The deity, the God himself, offered the sacrifice that would appease him. That we could not even offer the best appropriate sacrifice. We could not. 
But God said, look, if I'm going to, and this is why I'm saying the, the, the forgiveness of God should be feared, it should be revered. That God took the initiative and said, look, if I don't do this myself for these people, they have no chance. No chance at all. Whom God set forth as a propitiation, talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, by his blood, through faith, to do what? To demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. This is where you start to see the concept of the Passover. Verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. You see that word again. His righteousness. His righteousness. His right doing. That he might be just. So now we're seeing what the cross represented. The cross represented the justice of God. And you, dear person, dear human being, you have some inner, innate inclination for justice. When you see people being maltreated, you will shout out. You will scream about it. In the last elections where you saw that things were not working out and things were rigged and you, you cried out, why? That's not just. That is wrong. There's, there's, there is a, there's a justice mechanism working in you which you got from a, a just creator. But this tells us the reason why he offered Jesus as the sacrifice is so that he can be just. Because at the end of the day, the price must be paid. Someone has to pay the price. Someone has to take the fall. Someone must get the reward, the punishment that they truly deserved. And if God is to be just, he has to punish. He has to mete out justice. If you're in a courtroom and, and your mother, sadly, God forbid, your mother was duped of some money, and they find the culprit and they bring the guy and they say, look, we found you. It's from what I've seen, you look like a decent man, but you stole this woman's money. And the guy says, ah, <laughs> judge, is, it was the devil's handiwork. I, I don't know what came over me, but I'm sorry. Like, I've spent the money. There's really nothing I can do, um, but I'm sorry. If the judge looks at this man and says, you know what? Guys, this man, look at his record. His record is clean. I mean, madam, please bear with him. I think we should let him go. Eh? You will shout. You will revolt. And maybe it's not even monetary. Imagine it was something that was done that is not even quantifiable with money. Maybe you, you had a sister, God forbid, that was raped. And this person is brought for, and, and the judge does nothing about it. You will say justice was not served. That's what you will say. You're not a good man. You're not a just God because justice and goodness are inseparable. If God was to express his goodness, he has to be just. And if he's going to express his justice, someone has to pay the price. But herein on the cross, we see that he is just. For justifying the one who has faith. That is where it comes together. So now there's a legal reason 
in the spiritual realm for him to say, your sins are forgiven. He can look to you and say, your sins are actually cleared out forgiven. Why? Because justice has been meted out to someone. I'm going to explain the mechanism of this. On the cross, what we see is the justice and the mercy of God collide in one person. We'll talk about this some more. I want to go into the reasons for the cross. The reasons for the cross. I'm going to talk to you also about why, why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? And then we'll talk about, of course, the greatest news of all, that he didn't just stay dead. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 10 to 14. I hope you love reading the scriptures as much as I do. It's so important that we read these. Galatians chapter 3 from verse 10 to 14. I, I don't think a lot of people read this on Easter, but let's see how it goes. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law. For as many as are of the works of the law are what? Under the curse. They're under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the Lord to do them. And you see an example of this. You know, James talks about this as well. But you also see this in Deuteronomy 28, where it tells you if you abide by this and you do this and you do this commandments, blessed are you. Deuteronomy 28. Blessed are you if you do all these things, if you... Whether you're blessed in the day, you're blessed in the night, when you go out in the field, when you come back home, you're blessed if you obey it. But if you are not able to keep any of it, and, and the perspective that James brings is, if you are faulty of one, of just one law, you, you, are, you default in just one, you are guilty of all. There's nothing like, uh, it's just one white lie. I've never, I've never stolen, I've never committed adultery. Just one white lie. You are still a culprit according to the law. You are cursed. If you do not do all that is required in the law, not even if you just default in the littlest bit, you are under a curse. That's what this is saying. So the law, the law was aggressive. The law had zero tolerance. Took no, no, took no prisoners. Zero tolerance. And when we talk about the law, you know, like when I read this, this scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, the law had the appearance, and this is why the Pharisees struggled with this. The, 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 the law had an appearance of wisdom, had an appearance of being able to solve the problem of sin. You know, 1 Timothy 4, 8 says, um, bodily exercise profits what? Little or is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise of the present life and also the life to come. And, and of course, I, I hope this is not you. I know many people miscon misconstrue this text and they say that what this text means is, um, you know, jogging. When you do jogging and you do sprints, you do long jump, you do frog jump, all this body exercise, you lift weights in the gym. It profits little. So when you go to the gym, it means nothing. I'm a godly man. That's all that counts. That's, that is not what it's talking about. When you read the context, this bodily exercise, I'll summarize it and say it is 
traditions of men. It's practices, ascetic practices that you are exercising your body to do. Whether it's fasting or not handling this or not doing this. It says that is one thing, but there is godliness that is profitable unto all things in this life and the life hereafter. There's a different kind of godliness. Not bodily exercise, not bodily sacrifice. Colossians 2.20, I will show you what I mean. Colossians 2.20. It says, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Look at this. <laughs> He said, if in, with Christ you died to these things, why are you acting as if you are still alive in the world? He says, do you submit to regulations, right? According to human precepts and teachings. This is bodily exercise. These have indeed an, an appearance. And when you read verse 20, it says, um, touch not, handle, do not handle, do not touch. That's what the law was saying. Don't touch this. Don't eat this. Don't do that. He says this, that they have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. That's what bodily exercise. When you fast, that's bodily exercise. I hope you know. But they are of no value. Look at this. This is the point. This is where I've been getting to all along. The law, it says, it's all these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I mean, these guys had the law. They tried, they tried, but they always failed. Moses thought that by putting these 613 laws in motion, it should solve somebody's problem, but it ended up being worse. The law was there to tell these guys, look, that you are cursed. If you don't obey me, you are cursed. It revealed the problem that these guys had. It's, you know, someone described, described it this way, that it's like you're in a dark room. It seems like there's nothing there. But when you shine a torchlight and you see the, the beam of light, what do you see? You start to see particles, right? The particles are not coming from the torchlight. They've always been in the room. But now the torchlight is, is showing and revealing to you that they are there. That's what the law does. You know, Paul says, how do you know that, you should, that, that committing adultery is not wrong unless the law told you it's wrong? It's to reveal sin, to, to, to reveal sin and to punish sin when it's revealed. But if you default, you're cursed. Verse 11, back to Galatians 3. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. So he's saying, look, this law, clearly, you cannot be justified by the law. It's impossible. In the sight of God, it's impossible because the law was never de designed to deliver. It was never designed to save. The only way the just people can live is like the prostitutes. When you put faith in Jesus, your faith has made you whole. Your, your faith, you know, when you read Luke 7, as you read further, it says your faith has, forgiven, has, has made forgiveness available to you. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith. Then the law is not of faith. It's of works alone. But the man who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Shout aloud, hallelujah. hallelujah. And many people read this and they don't know what it means. <laughs> yes, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. These two things are different. The curse of the law. I'll talk to you about what that means. The curse of the law. And the curse of the law, in summary, is the, the punishment that we deserve. The punishment that we deserve. Sin is only imputed when there is law. That's a basic principle. If there is no law, sin cannot be imputed against you. Do you understand? Once there is law, then that action that you've always done without consequences now, when there's a law, have you thought, think about it, if you use the university, I'll use my university, my alma mater uh, for, as an example. I, I want to believe, I don't know the history, I, it's all just hearsay, that there was a time where people were allowed to wear jeans. I don't know, maybe. Where you could wear jeans, trousers, jackets, whatever. And maybe one day someone abused it. This is the story I heard, that one day one girl decided to, you know, hire some rats and hamsters to design her trouser, uh, jeans, and so there were holes all over. And <laughs> she was just walking, you know, and the chancellor was driving by and just looked, what on earth? Stop this, stop this car, stop this car. Come here, you. How dare you? What was this? Never again in my school. Never again. And before, wearing the jeans was acceptable. Everyone was fine with it. But now there's a law in place. Guess what? If you're found with it, you're now what? Culpable. You're culpable. You can be vindic You can be convicted. I beg your pardon. Do, do you understand the idea? That's what the law was for. It was never designed to save. Never designed to save. But it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the punishment that comes with disobeying the law. Because he became a, a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on the tree. This statement is from Deuteronomy 21, from verse 22 to 23. It says this quickly, I'll read this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, this is Moses speaking. If a man has committed a crime that is punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man that remains hanged, a man that, that is hanged, the hanged man is what? Cursed by God. So this is where it came from. And John Calvin talks about this, one of the great reformers. He says this, that Moses does not hear speak generally, but only of those men, malefactors who are unworthy of burial. There's some men, there's some criminals that, for example, just off the top of my head, a Hitler, he doesn't deserve a burial. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there's some malefactors that are unworthy of a burial and the man so hanged is called the curse of God because this kind of punishment is detestable in itself. So what you see now is that the innocent and blessed son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was hung on a tree as though he was the most heinous criminal you could think about. He suffered and experienced the incredible wrath and justice of God, took the, covenant, the, the covenantal punishment and curse for us 
took that punishment that we deserve, took our place so that we would experience the covenant blessings of God. That's what happened on the cross. That's what happened on the cross. Verse 14, Galatians 3, that the blessing of Abraham, he took this so that what happened for us, he did it thinking of us. That the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that through him all nations of the world will receive a blessing. And through him all nations of the earth, both Jew and Gentile, will receive the gift of salvation, the gift of life. He says that it might come upon the Gentiles, all nations, in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. As Abraham received the promise that he see through his seed, not seeds. Through his seed, all nations will be blessed. By faith, he believed it's the same with us. That anyone who believes likewise will receive the promise. He came to rescue us from the curse of the Lord. Praise the name of Jesus. That we will not perish. That's the statement in John 3, 16. That we should not perish. That we should not be placed under a curse. But then again, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? I'll read this quickly. Number one, to summarize what we've said, to, to satisfy the justice of God. To satisfy the justice of God, blood must be spilled. And the Bible says the wages of sin is what? It's death, the payment, the salary for your sins. The curse of the law is death. Number two, to satisfy, we said to satisfy the justice, but now also to satisfy the mercy of God. And that's why Christianity by far is the most beautiful, beautiful community, a beautiful family, and beautiful institution you can ever think of. It's an institution where a God humbled himself, a deity humbled himself, became a man. Think about that. No other religion do you see that happen. That he came to solve the sin problem, not just put up with it. He solved it. He executed all his attributes in the salvation of man. Think about that. He didn't pause and say, you know what, because of these guys, I will not be just anymore. Let me now be nice to them. He didn't pause any of his attributes or else he will cease to be God. He upheld his justice, upheld his mercy in one breath, in one cross. Justice, mercy. He poured out the wrath that you deserve, the curse of the law that you deserved. He poured it out on this man. And because he poured it out on this man, he had shown you mercy. Because mercy is not getting what you deserved. You deserved the punishment. You deserved to perish. But he gave it to Christ in your stead. So Jesus our Lord died to satisfy the mercy of God. It's called substitutionary atonement. You see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be what? A sin sacrifice for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This man had not touched sin, had no business with it, but he became a sacrifice for us. As an act of mercy, as an act of loving kindness, because there is forgiveness in God that he should be feared. Hallelujah. Number three, why did Jesus die? Why was he the one who died? Because he was the perfect sacrifice. I already established it before, right? 
that we could not offer anything reasonable. No child sacrifice, no virgin sacrifice would work. No grain sacrifice would do the trick. No lamb sacrifice would, would hold for long. And so he decided to send the lamb, his lamb. And this is the reason for the virgin birth. That he's estranged from sin. That he's sinless in nature and in action. Because every other human being, every other person that could try to stand in the gap for everyone else was born of a man. Even if they're the most morally upright people, they were born of a man, born of Adam, through whom sin entered into the world. But it had to be a new Adam from a different nature, a different home, a different position, one who would vanquish what the first Adam had caused. Praise the name of Jesus. This is why he died. And, and when I think about his death on the cross, I see the physical side of it. I see the spiritual side. The physical side alone, you know, a lot of people assume that when he was at, you know, at the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying this prayer and, and sweating so profusely like droplets of blood and, and he was praying so hard and, and, and mourning and grieving that he was thinking about this. And he was thinking about this. And he was thinking about this. And all of those things, I, I, I'm telling you, gruesome. Gruesome. Being mocked alone. And when you think about the paintings that, that you see of, of Christ on the cross, the, I tell you, those paintings are modest. In Roman society, there's no napkin around your waist, nothing like that. Just to help your eyes. <laughs> but he was stripped naked. Imagine the man who would be called king of the Jews. They even wrote to them mockingly, Henry, put it on his, on, 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 mocked him, stripped him naked, and then beat him before he got to the cross, flogged him, made him carry the cross that so much so that he couldn't even go further till he had some help. He was nailed in his arms, in his wrists, and in his feet, the crown of thorns on his head. That alone is enough to scare someone. That God, this one, I know do I'm, I know if you do up. <laughs> I've tried. I've done. I've, I've healed many people. I, I, I've raised the dead. I've tried. But there was more to the grief. There was a spiritual reality to the grief. It was the curse of the law. He was going to carry upon himself the sin of the world and, and the wrath for the sin of the world. He was going to taste of death for the sake of the world. He was going to taste of our shame, our guilt, condemnation. All that the law brought, where the law brought guilt, shame, condemnation, he was going to take all of that for us. The full measure of the wrath of God, the, the punishment for our sins was going to be poured out on him. So when people saw a man who was nailed to a cross, the spiritual man would see our sins upon him and the wrath of God fully poured out on one sacrifice. In the Jewish tradition, you know, you would offer a sacrifice and the fire, the incendiary fire represented the wrath of God to burn the sacrifice. But the reason why Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is the perfect sacrifice is when they did those lamb sacrifices, the lamb doesn't remain. It's consumed. But this, our Savior, was not consumed. He gave his life. He gave his life. 
Praise the name of Jesus. My question is this, before we get to the good part, because now it seems scary, it looks daunting, it's like, and for, I don't believe anyone doesn't know the story here, but spoiler alert, it gets better. But, but the question is, how do we respond to the cross? How do we respond to the cross, the message of the cross? When we think about it, how, when you think of a humble God, a serving Father, a willing Savior, how do we respond? How do we respond? The cross, it's a unique element in all world religions. It's unique. The cross represents something. A selfless God. A God who looks to the interest of his people first. A God who became amongst his people, walked amongst his people. The word of God became flesh. When you think about that, how do you respond? Are you ridden with joy? Are you filled with hope? Do you rejoice when you think about it? I, I, I don't want you to have this Easter week pass you by and leave you the same. I want you to move. If there's anything that will be accomplished because of this Easter season, because of this teaching, is that when you remember God, you, you are moved to, to loving him, to joy, to fear, because forgiveness is in him. That you're not numb anymore. That you're not just saying, oh, Christ died for my sins. Cool. That you cannot but utter those words with some emotion in your heart. That you cannot but utter those words with some feeling, with some affection, with some gratitude, with some worship. Where you throw your hands in the air and say, Lord, you saved me. While I was yet a sinner, you died for me. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, thank you. For there is forgiveness in you. Thank you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Adopted us as sons. Forgiven us of all our sins by his blood. Thank you. You must respond to the cross. Respond to the revelation. That all he did was not just because he was trying to be some good martyr. He did it for you. It's always been about you. He took the fall and thought of me. Above all, he did all he did because he did it for you. By the eyes of Revelation, I want you to always remember the story. When you watch the movies, when you watch the depictions of his death, I want you to remember that he did it for you. And he should be, he should be celebrated. But more importantly, we should celebrate what happened after that. After he, he, he gave his last breath. And, and by the way, I don't believe in a, in a spiritual death. I personally, and I've, I've given you reason in different teachings, but I personally don't believe that Jesus had to die a spiritual death for it to be effectual. I don't. Because the implications of it are dire. That this man would have to have died a spiritual that be separated from the Father. What happens if the Son is separated from the Father? If God is separated from God, what happens? If God is, you know, you know this is what the spiritual death is popularizing the word of faith movement where Jesus dies, separated from the Father, goes to hell, and he's being tormented of the devil and his demons, but he, he rises up, defeats them in triumph, 
comes out from the grave and is victorious. I don't believe that narrative. I believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were fully involved, fully united, fully integrated in the salvation plan. There was no separation. I believe that with all my heart. In fact, by the time he was going to, you know, um, give up the, the ghost, the Bible says, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's not, it, it, that's not a phrase that depicts separation. It's into your hands. But beyond that, he took his last breath and was buried in a, in a tomb, buried with the rich. And then there were rumors that the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene came, saw a tomb, and it was, seemed empty. There was nobody there. You know, this is a spectacular thing to think about. That Jesus, our Lord, in all religions where we have heroes in the religions, we have this protagonist, many of them died. And many of them even claimed to have come back to life. But there was never any evidence for it. All of them still dead to today. Jesus was the very first one. To say he will rise up, predict his resurrection, and actually rise up with proof, with evidence. And one of the major proofs and evidences that we have that Jesus actually resurrected, it might sound ironic, but, but stay with me, is that the grave was not empty. One of the proofs that Jesus truly resurrected is that the grave was not empty. I'll explain. John chapter 20 from verse 7. I read from 6 to 7. John chapter 20 from verse 6 to 7. It's one of the most remarkable proofs. A grave that wasn't quite empty. John 20 from 6 to 7. It says this. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And what did he see? He saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief which had been around his head, that he used to wrap his head, it wasn't lying with the linen clothes, but was folded together in a place by itself. <laughs> you know, people you know, had, had given false rumors and said, look, the disciples stole the body. They, they had talked so much that he would come back to life, so they orchestrated the whole thing. So even though the Roman army was surrounding the tomb, somehow all of them had slept and somehow the disciples tiptoed. Peter, Peter, go, go. John, aside. And they rolled this big stone. By the way, this stone is, is about a ton in weight. And moved it silently that all the soldiers... By the way, if a soldier is given a task, a soldier is given a task to do, and a prisoner to watch, and they don't do that, it's execution, they'll be killed. So they take those things seriously. There was a Roman seal on the tomb. It was a done deal. If you broke that seal, you are gone. So these guys who ran away after Jesus resurrected somehow must have the boldness to come and roll the stone away. They will now carry Jesus. Oh yeah, carry him, carry him, carry him. Carry him, carry him, carry him. And then they now say, ah, 
But this cloth is not organized, Sha. Did you bring iron? Please, please, hold on, hold on. You're not carrying the clothes. Fold it. Yes, uh, Jesus is neat. Okay, guys, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. If that's what you... <laughs> How? This tells me a lot. This man was not in a hurry. He was not in any hurry. He was risen. It was final. It was done. And the, and the scriptures tell us the soldiers saw the angels and fled. They saw a vision of angels in front of them. They fled the scene. That's how, that's the sleep that happened. But this tells us that this is beautiful. He was risen, truly risen. But the question is, why is the resurrection so important? And someone asked me this question recently. Someone even in the ministry asked this question recently. And I was, at first, I was like, ah, this is an interesting question to be asking at this stage. But I'm telling you, it is fundamental. It's fundamental to our faith. And this is what it is. 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, pay attention here. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It is meaningless. And you are still in your sins. And you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. Romans chapter 4. For verse 25, and this is my first point. The resurrection of Jesus, the reason for the resurrection, or what, what the resurrection of Jesus means to us. Number one is that it ensured that we are justified. I'm going to read a scripture that explains what I just said. It said, if, if Jesus did not rise, your faith is futile. And not just that, not just the fact that it's meaningless now, that this man who told you there's still life after life not only is that going to be the case but you'll still be in your sins you'll still be in your sins and i'll explain that but look at this number one the resurrection of jesus ensured that we are justified that means we are forgiven of sins that's what justified means that we we are forgiven and we have right standing with god romans 4 verse 25 it says, who was delivered up because of our offenses? Talking about Jesus. He was delivered up. When you say delivered up, or he was lifted up, as the scriptures say, you know, if, if, he, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When he said, I will be, if I be lifted up, he wasn't saying, if you lift him, Lord, I lift your name. You cannot lift him. You don't have the ability to. And, and this is just a side note. We should change those songs or change the lyrics of those songs. When you say, Lord, I, I, I know that we talk about it from a place of exaltation. But we have to be careful with the language because the one who had the ability to exalt the name of Jesus was the Father. It was the Father. Philippians 2 tells us he had abased himself, obedience to the cross. But the Father restored the glory that was given to him at the beginning and gave him the name above every name. He is the one that lifted. We cannot lift. We don't say... You know, and crown him, crown him. You say, you are crowned. You are crowned. It's done. You've been lifted. But that's by the way. When he said, if I be lifted up, he was talking about his death, lifted up on a cross. Here, the, the scripture says, who was delivered up because of your offenses. But what else, was ha what else happened? And he was raised 
For what? Because of your justification. So the resurrection, the resurrection is what affords us our justification. And that leads me to the second point. It is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was approved of God, was accepted by God. The fact that he came back to life, it's proof that, look, the work was truly finished. The work was done. And it was efficacious to solve the problem of sin and give eternal life. It's proof that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted by God. Praise the name of Jesus. Another thing that it afforded us is this. And, and before I go into this, I want to just say this. If you know anyone, anyone at all, like think about how handicapped you are. And you know, I, I was also listening to it. I can't remember the quotes as much, but I'll paraphrase. You know, it was a, an actor that said this, you know, that there is such a daunting effect of that, that death brings with it. The finality of death. And the nothingness, the emptiness of death, it's frightening. This guy said it. He said, every achievement that you will ever accomplish is utterly made meaningless by this one thing called death. The, what did you say? Woody Allen. Yeah, Woody Allen, that's his name. An actor, filmmaker. And when I think about it, it's sad. I was watching it, and, uh, you know, I was watching an interview you know, between Pierce Morgan and, and, and Richard Dawkins. And he asked him, what do you believe about life after death? And he said, well, it means nothing to me. It's, it's non-circumstantial that he has lost people. People come, people go. And that's it. We just cease to exist. And he asked him, said, but doesn't that scare you that everything you've done means nothing? He said, well, that's just how life is. And that's... Sometimes it's a depressing thought to think about, but it's just how it is. You know, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, his own perspective, who's an astrophysicist, I believe, uh, his, his own perspective is that we came from stardust and we'll go back to being dust. That's it. We came from the stars and we'll just end up being stardust at the end of life. And there's nothing. You know, and, and he pushed back. Piers Morgan pushed back and said, what about people who had near-death experiences? Every single case, almost every single case, people saw some light. Like medically speaking, people saw some light in some tunnel. People had where their bodies were, you know, where they left their bodies to some extraterrestrial plane, things like that. How do you explain these occurrences? But I can tell you that anyone who does not have, not just, and understand that there's a life after, but does not have an assurance that they get to live again. Think about it. Everything you've done now means nothing. When you think about it, everything that we do now would mean absolutely nothing if there's, there, there are no eternal consequences for what we do now. If we don't get to live after this life, it means nothing. You know, Paul said in the same 1 Corinthians 15 that if there truly is no resurrection, we have most men most miserable. Of all men most miserable. Our hope is predicated 
upon the resurrection of Jesus. Number three. Number one, I said that the resurrection of Jesus did what? Ensured our justification. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus was proof that the sacrifice was accepted by God. And number three, it guaranteed our own resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus guaranteed our own resurrection. Romans 8 verse 11. I know, I know this scripture contextually um, spoke more about the, should I say, the, the killing and mortification of the flesh in terms of righteousness. But it's also very applicative in terms of our bodily resurrection. Romans 8, 11. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So there was a spirit. There was something. There was an agent within Jesus that brought him back to life. There was a mechanism within our Lord Jesus that brought him back to life. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. If he also dwells in you, just if we stop there, I think you get the picture, right? If the spirit that brought Jesus back from death lives in you, what does that say about you? He says, he who raised Christ from the dead will also, also give life, quicken, bring to life your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Glory to God. Can you just in 10 seconds appreciate this God and rejoice and thank him? God, thank you because we have your spirit. Hallelujah. The spirit of resurrection, the agent of resurrection, uh, the trigger for, for resurrection, for a life after now. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, what a hope we have. It's a living hope. A living hope. That even if we die now, we will come back to life like Jesus. And we will never taste of death again. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm going to read another scripture. And I'll tell you the fourth point and we pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13 to 17. I'm going to read this. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as the others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that, that Jesus actually died and he rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And a true test, a true test of your faith in Jesus. Many times you see it when you lose someone who was in the faith. Like, is this a fairy tale or is it real? That anyone who sleeps or dies knowing and believing in Jesus Christ, that you will actually see them again. Is this real? I've come face to face with this question, this reality, when I've lost people dear to me who are in the faith. And that's when you know that truly, look, there is a hope. There has to be. And this is not us trying to find some emotional cushion to make ourselves feel good. There has to be or else life is meaningless. It's meaningless, utterly. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive will remain until the coming of our Lord. You know, will by no means precede those who are asleep. So we're not going to be before those who are already, you know, dead in the Lord. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a shout. Our Lord Jesus will come back with a shout from heaven, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The activating mechanism of that resurrecting agent in you is the trumpet of God. When the trumpet sounds, have you seen those things where the sound triggers something? Have you seen those things? I remember doing this in secondary school. There was a, a clap um, switch. We call it a clap switch where you do like this and then the light comes on. The light goes off. But in this case, the trumpet activates the spirit of God. So everyone who was asleep by the activation of the trumpet of God, they come back to life. Glory to God. That's beautiful. Beautiful stuff. And the dead in Christ will rise, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be. And thus shall we always be. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Shout aloud, hallelujah. hallelujah. This is beautiful. This is the hope you have. It's a living hope. It's not false. And hope, love, make it hope not. It doesn't make hope ashamed. As the scripture says in Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God does not make us our, our hope ashamed or inferior. Praise the name of Jesus. And the fourth reason, and the fourth thing that the, the resurrection does is it proves that death has been defeated. Think about it. Think about it. How, what other way is there to prove that death has been defeated? How? By living beyond death. By coming back from this thing called death. That's how you beat it. That's how you prove that it has no hold over you. So by the resurrection of Jesus, death has died. Say death has died. By the resurrection of Jesus, death has died. Death has been vanquished. And, and Paul sings in a poem, he says, you know, or recites in a poem, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Rhetorical questions saying you have no sting, you have no victory, you've been defeated, you've been trampled upon, and our Christ is victorious, and because he is victorious, and we have the spirit of resurrection, we also are victorious. That when the time comes for us to sleep, or when he returns, we have conquered death, and death will be put under our footstool amongst all the enemies on that last day. Glory to God. This is your hope. And this is why we celebrate Easter. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.